Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the Kevin McCarthy era is upon us. Last night, the GOP-controlled House passed its first bill of the term to remove more than $70 billion in funding from the IRS. It also passed a rules package that underscores the influence of the party's far-right flank. It includes the ability to start the process of removing the Speaker with a single vote. All this as Republicans are set to launch investigations targeting Democrats and as lawyers for President Biden find classified documents stored at his think tank. We take stock of the news. Join us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Speaker Kevin McCarthy told the Associated Press last night that he'll remove influential Democrats and fellow Californians Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff from the Intelligence Committee. It's the latest of several moves signaling how Republicans will use their majority. Last night, the House approved rules that enshrine concessions McCarthy made to his party's hard-right faction, including the creation of a special committee led by Representative Jim Jordan that will investigate the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. We get reaction later in the hour from Congress member Adam Schiff. Joining me now is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks so much for being with us. I'm glad to be with you. So, so as I mentioned, House Republicans managed to pass the operating rules for the new Congress. This is despite concerns from some Republicans of what they saw as an overhaul of the rules by Speaker McCarthy because he was desperate to get the votes needed. Uh, to secure the gavel. Can you tell us about the rules package and what it reveals about the concessions that McCarthy made? 
Well, you know, first of all, the fact is, you know, McCarthy had to make these concessions. Otherwise, he wasn't going to be speaker. I mean, he went through 15 rounds and it essentially weakens the speakership. You know, I mean, not just and we've been talking about this uh, is one of the things that people had been uh, alluding to, you know, lowering the threshold uh, to hold a no confidence vote to vacate a speaker went from uh, a majority to five to now one. So that's in there, uh, which could make McCarthy uh tenure as speaker pretty short if he does some things that uh you know some of the folks on the hard right don't like you know because it's not like mccarthy went over and tried to work with democrats to try to cut off that right right flank instead he is more sort of beholden to them now i mean when it comes to economic issues when it comes to shutdowns when it comes to the debt ceiling you know uh, it's an open question on whether or not government's going to be able to really function And you mentioned 15 rounds of voting. Just the last time the House struggled to elect a speaker like that was a century ago. So I just want to backtrack for a second and ask you what you take away from that whole exercise, what was going through your mind as you watched that play out? Well, it's, you know, first of all, it's like watching paint dry, right? So, and, and you're not sure if you like the color, but you got to sit there and watch the room and, and there it is, you know, so just, it you're not sure what to make of it. It's something you hadn't, we haven't seen, obviously, uh, for 100 years with it not going beyond one round, but even further back than that into the 1850s, till it went to this many rounds. So, you're at a situation where, you know, my th- my thinking was I covered the Tea Party and this is, uh, you know, a pretty clear, um, you know, line that you can draw from now to then for this has been a long time coming with Republicans. You know, they have been uh, you've had moderates who are irritated with the rise of Trump, but were perhaps too afraid to say so. You've had the hard right emboldened by Trump, emboldened in some cases by January 6th. Some of the people who are uh, on this far right flank were people who were involved with, um, you know, uh, you know, promulgating Trump's election lies after the election. And, you know, this is a odd situation where now we're going to have divided government and a party that's divided. And it's going to be a heck of a task for McCarthy to be able to, you know, work with Democrats too. Because the other thing I kept thinking about is for these 20 folks uh, who were holding out for, for a bit, they're, they're almost kind of myopically looking at how what they want out of things as opposed to the fact that this is divided government there is a democratic president there is a democratic senate there are moderate republicans and how are they going to try to compromise and work together but that's become a dirty word for them yes well you mentioned you know these 20 folks who are holding out and also that president trump has a lot of influence over Many of them, though at the same time, I was so struck by hearing Kevin McCarthy at a press conference after he was elected Speaker of the House, essentially thanking Trump. I just want to play that really quickly. But I do want to especially thank President Trump. I don't think anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. So, so... What is going on here? Kevin McCarthy is thanking him, even though he holds a lot of sway over this faction. He, Trump was on the record as saying that he supports Kevin McCarthy, but at the same time, um, 
And the fact that the hard right faction was so against him, there was some suggestion that President Trump was losing his sway. Then there's reports that he convinced the hard right faction to change <laughs> their minds. So, so <laughs> which is it? Does he still hold a lot of influence over the party? Uh, he does, but you know, it doesn't mean that it's uh, ironclad. And you know, I think that there's a lot to say about former President Trump and his influence in this process and Kevin McCarthy himself. I kept thinking that Kevin McCarthy's path to power has really been paved by uh, former President Trump. McCarthy is somebody who in 2015 wanted to be speaker, but because of his own flubs, uh, his inability to communicate clearly about the Benghazi committee, which he said had been hurting Hillary Clinton, uh, that was there was that that was not what the guise of that committee was supposed to be. Republicans had taken pains to avoid saying that they were trying to hurt Hillary Clinton's presidential nomination, but then. Kevin McCarthy said the quiet part out loud, and a lot of Republicans just didn't trust him from that point on to be able to, you know, keep the message together. So he glommed on to President Trump. He, uh, you know, burrowed into his good graces. Trump was able to kind of keep him by his side. He knew this was somebody that he could use to be able to be a vehicle for legislation and uh, other things that he needed through Congress. And, you know, after January 6th, that's why Kevin McCarthy really couldn't continue his, uh, you know, strident criticism of the president's responsibility for that day, because he knew that if he wanted to be speaker with the likelihood that Republicans could take back the House in a president's first midterm and the historical nature of that, he needed Trump on his side. So fast forward to that night with those 15 or nights with those 15 uh, rounds of voting. Yeah, Trump's influence was limited for a while. Uh, people like Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, uh, were not really wanting to hear it. He wants more of his own attention, ability to fundraise, and whatever uh, he was able to get out of Kevin McCarthy in the end uh, for um, you know power in Congress. But at the very last moment there, after midnight, Trump did call Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia. She brought the phone over to some of these members and at the very last minute convinced them to at least vote present, which gave McCarthy enough uh, votes for him to be able to win with a plurality. So it's a complicated, long story here, but it seems what was able to convince them was the optics of a Republican Party that looked like it couldn't get out of its own way and how that would be more damaging than putting McCarthy as speaker. Domenico, do you know if Democrats considered trying to work with McCarthy supporters in the speaker race? I mean, would that have well, even worked? But do you know if there were conversations around that strategy? You know, the, the prevailing notion from Democrats was to let Republicans hang on their own uh, on this, uh, let them walk the plank and not help them. Uh, the, and, you know, it was interesting strategy because uh, there was the viral photo with uh, C-SPAN cameras captured um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York talking uh, very oddly with uh, Paul Gosar, the congressman from mm. Arizona, who – by the way, put up that, you know, anime uh, doctored video that showed that depicted killing AOC as well as President Biden. He was censured for that. And then here's the two of them, these very unlikely members talking to each other. And AOC wound up revealing uh, that 
um, the conversation was Gosar asking her if Democrats had any plans to help McCarthy out. Was there some surreptitious thing that's going on behind the scenes? And she listened very patiently and told him and Matt Gates and others, absolutely not. <laughs> so that was an odd situation. You know, but I was left wondering, you know, when I heard some of these Democratic speeches uh, introducing Hakeem Jeffries as the new, uh, new leader of the Democratic Party, you know, I was wondering if they were going to say anything like, you know, uh, elect Jeffries because he can govern everybody, cut off this right flank, and, uh, you know, you can talk about it. But it's just not the way it works because it's just too difficult with committee assignments and power sharing to really have made that possible. And at the end of the day, McCarthy didn't want to do it. McCarthy wanted to be able to win over his conference and uh, be able to do that, gain that power through that vehicle. Yeah, it was striking actually hearing the new House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, after the election of Kevin McCarthy, really making a great show of drawing a distinction between Democrats and Republicans. Let's hear a little bit of what he said about them. Justice over judicial overreach, knowledge over kangaroo courts, liberty over limitation, maturity over Mar-a-Lago, normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon. What did you think of that, Domenico? <laughs> well, you know, I think that for Democrats, that was certainly a release valve. I mean, they'd been sitting through this for a long time. I heard from a lot of Democrats who were applauding Jeffries for doing that. Um, it's certainly, you know, not the Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. And I think that there's a lot more pugilism within the Democratic caucus now, where they're grown irritated with what they've seen as things that have been normalized that are just not normal. You know, what I mean, yeah. a former president encouraging, um, you know, essentially an insurrection was not something that was on most people's bingo cards, uh, nor uh, is it a normal thing. But, you know, it's one of those things where McCarthy, for example, is someone who kind of helped normalize that by bringing Trump back into the fold as Trump was able to bring McCarthy back into the fold so that they could sort of use each other for their own power sharing agreement. We are talking about the Kevin McCarthy era of the 118th Congress, what is unfolding already, and you, our listeners, are invited to share your questions about it. Also, what you think the impact of the latest moves by the GOP majority will be. Your thoughts on how Democrats are countering and how they should counter the influence of the far-right Republican faction that is starting to flex its power in major ways. You can email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum. Deborah writes, Republicans can't win if they don't cheat. And when they do win, they can't govern. In fact, they are not interested in governing, but in clinging to power and all its perks. They pervert every ideal they claim to love, freedom, patriotism, Christianity. What can ordinary Americans do to stop this tragic farce? This is my question every day. What can an ordinary person do besides the obvious voting? We've been talking about the cost to Kevin McCarthy a little bit more, but I do want to dig into what the broader cost to governing in the country may be after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. We'll talk with Yvette Dion about her new book, Weightless, on how fatphobic systems in the media and in medicine need to be dismantled. Today, we're talking about how Republicans are setting up to lead the chamber in the wake of last week's chaotic election of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We're talking with Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent at the Washington desk at NPR. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What are your questions about the workings of the 118th Congress? What do you think the impact of the latest moves by the GOP majority will be? What should Democrats do to counter the influence of far-right Republicans, if that is something that you are concerned about? And what congressional fights ahead are you paying attention to or most worried about? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post thoughts on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. So, Domenico, I want to dig in a little bit to something we learned more of yesterday, which is some of the concessions that McCarthy must have made on committee assignments. We are hearing for certain that there is going to be a new subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee that's going to be headed by Ohio Representative Jim Jordan that will investigate the weaponization of the federal government. First, what can you tell us about that committee and, and what it will likely do? Well, I think that there's going to be a lot of investigations, first of all, that, uh, you know, regardless of whether they go into that committee or others. But I think that that tells you very clearly why Jim Jordan uh, was was so strongly in favor of Kevin McCarthy. He's going to be the top, uh, you know, person on the Judiciary Committee and uh, wants to open all kinds of investigations, not just related to that, but to Hunter Biden's laptop, which I think we should be prepared for the fact that that is going to be a very real investigation, uh, despite the murkiness of all of that and how it'll be spun politically. Uh, And, you know, even potential impeachment proceedings for people like Alejandro Mayorkas, the Department of Homeland Security um, secretary, uh, which Republicans have floated talking about, even, you know, investigating uh, what these classified materials were that were found in uh, President Biden's uh, office in the at his Penn Biden uh, think tank, which are far fewer than what uh, was found with former President Trump and also uh, his lawyers were the ones who turned them in. So a completely different situation, but that's not quite how it's going to be spun by Republicans in Washington with that or any of the other uh, oversight uh, investigations that are going to take place. Yeah, you know, and I want to ask you about the Biden documents, classified documents in just a moment. I do want to ask you about one other chair that was named 
that was the Homeland Security Committee chair, Mark Green. One of the things that was notable about this was that there was some expectation that a moderate Texas Republican, Dan Crenshaw, would get that seat. Now it's gone to a hard right Freedom Caucus member, Mark Green. What can you tell us about that? And and what we know and don't know yet about some of the deals McCarthy may have made? Well, we don't know everything uh, for what he's for what he's uh, been uh, been what he's promised to others. But yeah, I mean, Dan Crenshaw was expected to be the person who got that uh, post, but clearly uh, there have had to be some concessions that he was able that he needed to make. And I think that when it comes to you know the steering committee too, which is another place where um, you know is uh, a very powerful committee in Washington. A lot of people don't know what it does, but essentially steers people to which committees they're going to be on. And those are also going to be populated a bit more than they were previously by people on this hard right. So clearly what we're seeing here is that McCarthy had to make these concessions. It could have some implications for things like immigration, um, not reform, because that's uh, that kind of an overhaul has not been talked about, but um, immigration uh, enforcement, um, uh, investigations that wind up taking place, uh, rather than there being, you know, there hasn't been any talk of like a gang of eight or any kind of, uh, you know, productive uh, potential outcome for what's happening at the border, which, you know, uh, both parties will acknowledge at this point, there's been, uh, there's a massive surge at the border and towns that are being overrun without enough resources from the federal government, but really a Congress that is unable and unwilling, especially with Republicans, uh, to really address it in a comprehensive way. Well, let me go to caller Daniel, who's on the line. Daniel, join us. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, I love the topic and the conversation and everything you guys bring to the world because you keep us informed and inspired. You're doing a great job. Now, I'll try to be as quick as I can. I think this all comes down to, globally, mentality. Who's in the building in leadership at the time? Are they coming to give or are they coming to take? It could be religious. It could be political. Any power structure. Are they coming to usurp the power that they can grab for themselves and for their cabal? Or are they literally coming to give as public servants, which is the job description, such that they can help their community and their constituents? Because you'll notice their decision-making pretty much goes right back to what is their mentality? Do they have the alignment? Do they have the desire to serve, to give to the world, to protect the garden and every living being in it, or not? Mm. Well, Daniel, thanks for sharing those thoughts. I I don't know quite how to put this, uh, Domenico, but I, I do wonder if you feel like the the idea of being a representative, having elected office for public service has died. <laughs> well, I think that there's a very distinct line here between a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats, and this is not everybody, uh, but there is a distinct faction among Republicans who firmly, um, you know, uh, believe in the Reagan, um, you know, idea that government is the problem and big government in particular. And we've heard this over and over again. But you know, the the clearest line 
that we've seen repeatedly, uh, you know, not just among leaders, but among people in this country is whether or not government's a good thing and what the role of government should be in American society. Democrats and people on the left tend to think that government uh, needs to step in in places where, you know, business or community have failed uh, to help the most vulnerable people. Republicans, on the other hand, feel that Democrat that uh, that government is a hindrance, especially on business uh, regulations in particular, uh, holding them back, uh, red tape and the rest, uh, don't think government is efficient. And this is a firm red line that there really isn't a lot of bridging this divide on. And I think that this was the biggest issue for uh, some of those on the hard right faction is they really want to strangle government. They think that it's spending too much money. They look at things like the omnibus and think that that is just way overspending COVID relief money. Even many feeling that uh, the, there's too much money that goes to the Department of Defense and these defense contracts, which uh, frankly, a lot of people on the left feel that way too. Um, and they want to be able to, for example, when a debt ceiling raise comes up where the United States is one of the only countries in the world to be able to say, okay, I'll raise my own credit limit. You know, wouldn't that be nice on your own credit card to say, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to raise it myself. The U.S. can do that, but they want to stop that because they want to be able to make uh, spending cuts to say that we shouldn't get to the point where debt is uh, what it is in this country. And, you know, those are all debates that are had, and it really does come down to the role of government. Mm. Well, let me go to Peter uh, in San Francisco. Peter, you're on. Uh, thanks for having this discussion. And a lot of what was just said is, is, is what I was saying, that ever since Reagan said government isn't the solution, it's the problem, it seems to me that, yeah, if you're a corporation or somebody rich, uh, all that government does is hinder your opportunity to do whatever it is you want to do to make money, including to grab common resources and exploit those and so on and so forth. So I've privately considered sort of the uh, the Republican Party is what I call the Republican uh, Radical Anarchist Party. And uh, they don't want government because it's going to inhibit primarily uh, the ability of wealthy people and corporations and so on to make unlimited and unfettered uh, money. And the first thing that they're doing now is with this IRS funding reduction, the IRS claimed that it didn't have enough money to audit uh, Trump's uh, returns annually because they were so complex. Uh, with the IRS cut in its ability to collect and enforce, people are going to basically start really questioning how fair is the whole system of getting money for the running of the government, how fair is it uh, as far as everybody being concerned uh, for fairness all around. And of course, the, the folks that are the, the hardest to audit are the ones, the corporate and the complex, the, the wealthy ones. And so yeah. I, I think that there's a kind of anarchism going on hmm. here that hurts the, basically the common good. Well, uh, Peter, thanks. Uh, let me read this comment from Bernie quickly, and then I'll get Domenico's response to you. Bernie writes, please stop demonizing all Republicans and using the term far right. It's actually far right to kind of distinguish among Republicans, more mainstream and more far right Republicans. But Bernie goes on to say a lot of the House rules changes are what Democrats outside of Nancy Pelosi's circle have called for years as Pelosi hoarded power around herself. As for any investigations, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. And Hunter Biden's business dealing in Ukraine and China does not pass the smell test at the very least. Bernie is 
basically also alluding to a lot of the things that were raised with regard to uh, the next steps on McCarthy's agenda, including investigations of Hunter Biden. There are calls for investigations of federal health officials about their COVID policies, calls for investigating big tech about whether they suppressed conservative speech. But they came out of the gate with the IRS, $71 billion being taken away. Why? What do you make of that, Domenico? Well, I think that this is a huge cultural issue. It's become one. I mean, we can go back to the Obama administration when uh, you know there were investigations uh, that were launched and audits from the IRS, uh, you know, toward uh, Tea Party leaning groups that um, Republicans really felt were targeting them. Um, and there's been just that has become a cultural sort of touchstone for Republicans. Um, you know, it is interesting. You had a former president and Trump saying that, you know, he was able to, um, you know, not pay, uh, you know, a certain amount in taxes. And that made him smart because he knew how to, you know, finagle the system and deal with that. And it is true that, uh, you know, wealthier people uh, have more complicated tax returns. Uh, the IRS, it was really eye popping to see the IRS say that they weren't able to audit uh, former President Trump because it was just too complicated. He has some 400 pass-through companies, and they have really struggled over the last 20 years to be able to do their jobs, frankly. Uh, and I, mean, I think that there's such a level of mistrust and distrust that's been sown by conservatives toward the IRS that you know they're they're not doing that they're really out to get conservatives that it is a bit of a head scratcher that they wouldn't want to have um, you know good fiscal management which is a big piece of what uh, you know the the leg of the Republican Party used to be about a, about good management about fiscal responsibility all of those were things that had been preached for a long time among Republicans and seem to be less important when it comes to the IRS. Um, I do think that there are some of these rules changes that um, have seemed fairly reasonable to a lot of people. For example, the 72 hours to read a bill. Mm -hmm. uh, it is mm -hmm. very difficult for even us to be able to read a bill and be able to explain to people uh, what's in it when it's you know some 2,000 pages dropped at midnight uh, and often done so that it can just be passed uh, based on what um, leadership says. So that is one of the areas that, you know, Democrats had practiced that at one point as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it is something that people on both sides of the aisle have, have pushed for and wanted. Um, and, you know, frankly, this situation with the what is the far right of the Republican Party, I mean, I think it was illuminating was that 85 90% of the Republicans in Congress wanted Kevin McCarthy to be speaker. And it was this fringe of, uh, you know, really, eight to 20 folks who didn't want McCarthy to be in. And the whole reason you're in that situation in the first place, if you're a Republican, is because the Republicans didn't have a large enough majority after the 2022 midterm elections. They only won a four-seat majority. Yes. And a lot of that was because of the types of extreme candidates who were backed by President Trump in swing districts who didn't win. And, you know, that is a big question that a lot of Republicans, especially moderate Republicans I talked to on Capitol Hill, who are really starting to finger point at the former president, saying this is not the kind of politics that wins in swing districts during a year when Republicans, you know, more traditional Republicans would have swept through and done much better. Yeah. Well, Marsha writes, journalists must name the fact that many of those who opposed McCarthy 
did not respond to subpoenas and also have serious and well-substantiated allegations against them. For example, Representative Scott Perry, who was implicated in the January 6th insurrection. Journalists must also consistently differentiate the criminal handling of classified documents of the former president and what the Biden administration did. They are not equivalent. Please do not normalize the criminal endeavors of the insurrectionists. This is an ongoing coup. You mentioned the disclosure yesterday from the White House that classified documents were found by Biden's own lawyers in November at his former office at a think tank. Um, so, so talk about how the situation is not the same as Trump's as you see it. It's completely different. I mean, again, this is a situation where the uh, lawyer, personal lawyers for uh, President Biden were packing up his office. Uh, which he used uh, at times uh, in Washington at this think tank that was associated with the University of Pennsylvania. They were packing up his office and in a file folder uh, in a box in a locked closet, not necessarily the most secure uh, place, they found uh, some materials with classified markings. Now, I'm not sure. We don't know yet what exactly were in those documents. There were reportedly about a dozen of them. Uh, But this is completely different than the situation with uh, former President Trump, who has, uh, you know, been accused of obstruction because he didn't want to turn over the documents, brought them with him to his Florida home. Uh, more than 160 of those documents um, with the top classified markings um, and things that he really felt belonged to him. He even tried to say that he declassified them. And then people argued, well, he was not he's not president currently. He can't declassify them. You're not hearing that argument from the White House currently when President Biden uh, has more of a ability to say that he's declassifying documents uh, going through a process. They, they're not talking about that. In fact, the White House says that they don't that President Biden doesn't know what's in the documents. He's not sure how they got there. Now, those are questions that need to be followed up on. How did the documents get there? How securely were they kept? But the intent is a big, big difference. Mm. And that's a big thing that a lot of former federal prosecutors have been talking about. He has been called out on why Biden waited two months to disclose the discovery. Yeah. And that was it was known just before the midterm elections. Um, You know, and I think that that is one thing that, um, you know, the Justice Department is probably gonna have to be asked about because the Justice Department um, did open this in in not investigation, but this was assigned uh, to a attorney in federal attorney in Chicago, who's a Trump holdover, John Lausch. Um, who Democrats wanted to keep in office, by the way. Um, And he's uh, heading up that to figure out some of these questions and why, uh, you know, it was revealed now as opposed to before the midterms. Yes. But whatever the legal differences, Domenico, which there are substantial ones, how is this going to be used? I mean, Republicans are already drawing parallels with Trump. And Trump, of course, posted on his network, as you alluded to, when is the FBI going to raid the many houses of Joe Biden? What kind of pressure does this put on the Department of Justice? I'm just curious how you Mm -hmm. see this being used. Well, first of all, the FBI didn't have to raid anything because President Biden's team turned them over (laughs) willingly and turned all of them over, uh, according to the Justice Department. So that is the archives weren't even looking for these uh, documents. Archives were looking for the documents that Trump's team uh, kept at Mar-a-Lago that then had to be searched to be able to get them. Now, 
to the politics, obviously, this is going to be th put through the meat grinder of politics. It's going to uh, Republicans are going to use a whataboutism technique to say that uh, President Biden uh, does it too, and everybody does it, and uh, then try to dismiss the behavior of former President Trump. And that's going to become a thing that gets talked about. There's a 60 Minutes clip, for example, of uh, President Biden saying uh, in September that uh, that uh, former President Trump he couldn't believe was so irresponsible with these documents. Now the scale of all of this totally different, and I think that that does need to be kept in context because this is not unusual that classified documents do show up in some places um, mm. with other federal workers. It yeah. just depends on how it's actually res responded to. More after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how Republicans are setting up to lead the chamber in the wake of last week's chaotic election of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There was a rules package last night that revealed and enshrined some of the concessions that McCarthy made to the hard right fringe of his party, and also some reporting about committee assignments that are giving us a sense of just how much power the far right House Freedom Caucus will wield with regard to investigations and the like. What are your questions about the 118th Congress? What do you think the impact of uh, this, these latest moves by the GOP will be? How would you like to see Democrats counter? What congressional fights ahead are you paying attention to or most worried about? Email forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Merrily writes, will McCarthy live longer than lettuce? Another listener writes, is this, is this IRS cut going to go anywhere? Isn't the Senate going to simply put it in the trash and not bother to bring it up for a vote? Domenico, talk about that. We are facing divided government. So really, the broad conclusion among many is that very little, if anything, will actually get done. Do you agree? Well, there are some I, – I do generally agree with that um, – that, but that was the same likelihood before the election if we had divided government. Uh, but uh, there are some things that are going to have to get done, things like funding the government, things like raising the debt ceiling, uh, and things like Ukraine funding. Uh, that's become a bit of a populist mm. Um, outcry from some on the right who are saying that they don't want to see continued funding, um, you know, with a quote unquote blank check to Ukraine. Um, you know, and that's going to be a fight, um, clearly. 
uh, although it does obviously a majority of Republicans, it seems, are in favor of continuing that funding. But if there aren't a majority, will McCarthy do what John Boehner did uh, and work with Democrats, which is what eventually led to John Boehner's resignation, that he uh, worked with Democrats to raise the debt ceiling because he couldn't get a majority of his uh, conference on board. And that essentially meant for him that he couldn't, as he used to put it, put, get his 218 frogs in a wheelbarrow. Well, Rye writes, I can't help thinking that if a few Democrats had voted for McCarthy for Speaker, then he would have had some favors or concessions owed to them rather than the far-right block. Do you know or hear anything about conversations that Democrats are having right now, maybe with more mainstream Republicans than the kinds of images of, you know, far left and far right coming together that we are seeing to really try to blunt the impact of a far right fringe that may not be as concerned as some mainstream Republicans about putting the nation's or global economy on the brink with the debt ceiling issue? Yeah, I think that there are, um, a, you know, again, a majority of Republicans who don't want to be in that situation again. And uh, they, there are, you know, quote unquote, Main Street Republicans, they have a caucus within the Republican conference, who I think are perfectly willing to talk to Democrats or some Republicans who are in uh, Biden districts, people like Don Bacon, uh, who won uh, his reelection is from Congressman from Nebraska, who's in a, a district that Joe Biden won narrowly in 2020. He was out there floating the idea of working with Democrats a bit more. But that's, useful for him in his district to look like he's somebody who can uh, you know, cross over. The problem is that most of the districts that people from both parties come from now are solidly red or solidly blue. And with the shrinking number of swing districts in the country and the shrinking number of competitive seats uh, that are in the country, you have less incentive for a lot of uh, people on either side of the aisle to really want to work with the other side uh, and you know, it's more, especially on the Republican side, there's this more uh, want for fisticuffs and uh, pugilism. Well, Renee writes, two plus years past January 6th, the Congress members that supported or aided the actors on that day have seemingly entirely carried on without any accountability whatsoever. What are the costs of this, not to either political party, but to voters and to taxpayers? I'd love to get your reaction to this. There are many who have drawn the connection between the events of January 6th and how the Congress members who played a role in trying to get all of these concessions and are flexing their power in the House were people who, as you said, were very prominent in supporting Trump's lie about the election. What do you think now that the January 6th committee has disbanded was the committee's impact overall? And, and I guess, as this sister wants to know, mm. the cost to the public? Well, I thought it was a bit strange in hearing so many of the speeches uh, when on the day that McCarthy was finally uh, elected speaker, you know, it was January 6th. And 
you know, or at least he was slightly after midnight after January 6th. And you didn't really hear a lot from Republicans and saying, you know, the Capitol was attacked and we need to unify. It's really become such a political thing for them um, that they see it as an attack on them and they become defensive about it uh, because they don't want to be blamed as an entirety, as an entire party. But, you know, it's true that uh, a lot of the people who are in that group on the fringe were people who uh, were involved in some way or another on January 6th. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. And that's something that I'd mentioned earlier. Um, it's certainly the case. And, and I think one of the other things I was thinking about with this is that one of the other consequences is, you know, it really raises the stakes for the 2024 congressional elections, because what happens if this same group is in charge of the House um, January 20th, uh, 20, uh, you know, or January 3rd or January 6th, whenever the, uh, January 6th, 2024, excuse me, uh, 2025, January 6th, 2025, if this same group is in control of Congress, are they going to vote to certify the uh, results of the 2024 presidential election? That would be a very big open question. So you don't feel a January 6th or similar is less likely now, even after all that we have gone through? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we can never know whether or not a January 6th situation will happen again where people crash the Capitol. Certainly it happened in Brazil. Yes. Uh, it certainly seems like the kind of thing that is not out of the realm of possibility if Republicans lose the presidential election in 2024 and whoever loses, uh, you know, if that is a Republican, doesn't concede the election, doesn't, you know, facilitate a peaceful transfer of power. And if Republicans control Congress uh, in January 6, 2025, uh, I think there's a real open question, like I said, on whether or not the, the whoever, if the Democrat wins, if they will certify those election results. And, uh, you know, that's not something that I think any of us would have said uh, before January 6, 2020. There is still so much work that is going on with that investigation, absolutely, for sure. And whether or not the reforms or safeguards um, will are going to be enough and and will be will be approved is still also an open question. The listener tweets: Representative Adam Schiff is in a safer district. I would rather have him run for Senate because of that fact. I love Porter, but her district is a mm -hmm. bit swingy. Adam Schiff, he uh, was supposed to join us, and we are being told that he will join us at any moment, but he is on the House floor, House floor, has been called to the House floor, and debate has run over, so we're keeping an eye out for that. But basically, he was a member of the January 6th committee, and this listener is referencing the news today that uh, Orange County Representative Katie Porter has announced that she will challenge uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein should Feinstein run for re-election. Uh, Adam Schiff is largely expected to also be very interested and run for that seat as well. But first, let me just get your reaction to that breaking news today, Domenico. Well, I think there's a deep bench in California of Democrats who want a Democratic Senate seat or a seat currently controlled by a Democrat. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see not just Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, but some others uh, who want that seat to be to jump into that race. But you know, it's a pretty savvy comment, frankly, uh, about um, Schiff's district being a safe one and Porter's being a uh, a competitive one because it is one of the sort of few dozen competitive seats in the country, and she's been able to show that she can pull it out. And you know, that does put one on the table for Republicans. But look, you know, people have ambitions; they want. Uh, you know, higher jobs, things that they want to get after, you know, and it, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think that Schiff 
himself, you know, has been a big spokesman for the party, uh, part of the impeachment management team, uh, and, you know, was pushed off of, uh, you know, his the intelligence spot on his committee, apparently. Uh, and that is seemingly payback for as much as uh, Schiff and Eric Swalwell, a congressman also from California, had uh, spoken out against former President Trump. And this is uh, some of that retribution you're seeing from Republicans. Yes, we're talking about how Republicans are leading the chamber in the wake of last week's chaotic election of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We're talking with Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR. And we are hearing from you, our listeners, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Last Friday was the anniversary of January 6th, and I want to dig in a little bit to some of the findings in the report that were most striking to you, Domenico. It was released earlier in the month of December, but in terms of reporting on some of the biggest aspects of it, it's been hard to kind of see the bombshells necessarily, but that does not mean that there weren't some really striking comments, reports, transcripts, and so on with more to be released. Tell me what stood out to you. I think that it was uh, a committee that was there for history. You know, not necessarily going to move people. Uh, there isn't a whole lot that's going to move people based on their political ideology uh, or their team shirt that they've got on. We did see some movement in our NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll uh, during the committee of independents, for example, who shifted um, uh, from you know being split or not believing that Trump was mostly to blame for January 6th to then after the hearings believing that he was to blame a majority of them saying that he was mostly to blame for January 6th. And you know if that's the only movable group, then to an extent the committee did its job politically for what it was trying to accomplish, which they've been very clear about. They don't think uh, former President Trump should hold office again because they see him as a threat to democracy. But having you know, person after person, Republican after Republican, people who served at the, uh, you know, the pleasure of former President Trump wanted to work for him, served on his campaign, say repeatedly over and over again, there is no truth to these lies, that the election was stolen, uh, this is made up, that there was uh, an effort, in fact, to submit fake electors, uh, to try to get legislatures to not, uh, you know, uh, uh, confirm their own slates of electors. This is this is unprecedented in American history, and it's something that you know needs to be put on the table. Republicans would argue that there wasn't enough uh, focus on uh, the security lapses and issues leading up to that. But you know, one of the things that did come out during that hearing was that former President Trump didn't do anything on that day, on January sixth, to call in uh, you know reinforcements, the Defense Department uh, or others. That this wasn't didn't appear to be a big concern of his, and that he was watching on television. It also made public that there were at least two hundred instances of targeting of election officials by President yep. Trump and his close associates after the twenty twenty. Election and continues to do so. I mean, he's targeting once again Ruby Freeman uh, in Atlanta, who, for all intents and purposes, was just a <laughs> worker who was trying to do her job, uh, and uh, and has been targeted. And there's tons of racial undertones and overtones to all of that as well. Yes. Let me go to caller John in Petaluma. Hi, John. You're on. Hello. Um, I have a couple comments, and I'd like to hear your response. First of all. Uh, you know, the Republicans pretty much said that they were going to 
exact a certain amount of retribution on the Democrats. So it's not going to be a surprise that they do that. I just wanted to say that there's a certain amount of irony in the fact that many of these Republicans who, especially the Freedom Caucus Republicans, um, are now so adamant in terms of investigating so many things when they pretty much stonewalled a very important January 6th investigation where the former president tried to overthrow the government. So it seems kind of uh, ironic at best that they um, are are trying to lead these investigations to the extent that they are going to tell the Fox News uh, echo chamber that the Hunter Biden laptop is is, you know, the fate of the Western world hangs on what's in that laptop when they were totally uninterested in in what went on on January 6th. And uh, the uh, political commentator uh, Mark Shields once said about the Republican Party that they're good, at, that they're like a mule that wants to kick down a barn, but they don't have any positive agenda for building things. And uh, and finally, my my final point is uh that with these investigations of, well, two points, with the investigation of the uh, uh, Justice Department, I think, again, they're sowing doubt in our democracy, which is kind of the ongoing coup, if you, if you will. Um, and they're, they're investigating the investigators, as, as it's been said. And, um, and finally, Jim Jordan uh, this guy has a whole background of sex scandal in Ohio, and there's ongoing pending cases in Ohio now regarding his time as a wrestling coach at Ohio uh, at, at a university where the doctor who was on the wrestling coach team was found to have had 177 cases of uh, sexual pedophilia. And that doctor, before facing trial, committed suicide. His locker was right next to to Jim Jordan's and Jim Jordan, this thing has been floating around in the ecosystem. Yeah, no love for Jim Jordan from, from John. I I do want to, John, you raise important points here, Domenico, with regard to the fact that Jordan is going to head the subcommittee, the judiciary committee. He's also largely expected to head the judiciary committee. That would give him unprecedented power. A, your thoughts on that, but B, also, have you heard anything about how Democrats plan to respond? Will they will they delay and, and refuse to uh, follow through with subpoenas, or will they try to draw a contrast and be involved and say their piece? Uh, just curious your thoughts on those two points. Well, if they're subpoenaed, most likely, you know, you're going to have normal people uh, appear before Congress. And you know, we've only seen one situation where, um, you know, the subpoena was rejected in a, in the Democratic administration of uh, former President Obama, when talking about Democrats, with Eric Holder, um, uh, you know, talking about executive privilege and all of that. So, you know, we'll see if it has to deal, do with the White House versus uh, and those kinds of conversation. I think it's going to be all of the above, as you mentioned, and that the White House is prepared for all of the above uh, investigations that are likely to come. Well, literally, we are hearing that 
Representative Adam Schiff is speaking on the debate about forming a Judiciary Subcommittee on Federal Government Investigations as we speak. So it does not look likely that he will join us. But Gary writes, thanks so much for having Domenico Montanaro for a full hour program today. He excels at distilling the main points, which at this moment of doubt about the viability of the U.S. democracy is vitally important. Domenico, less than a minute. What are you watching right now? Moving ahead. Well, it's nice to have, it's nice to have one fan. It's like, <laughs> uh, maybe it's like I tell my kids, "Hey, I'm on the radio or I'm on TV," and they're like, "Yeah, cool." Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> so, hey, that's good. <laughs> um, but you know, I I do wonder how much Republicans will be able to um, govern. What will they be able to get done? Will the basic functions of government be able to happen? You know, a lot of moderate Republicans are saying it will, um, but there. But clearly, Kevin McCarthy is a weakened speaker, and how long does he wind up lasting? Domenico Montanaro, NPR senior editor, senior political correspondent for The Washington Desk. Thank you so much for being with us and for answering our listeners' questions. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners, for asking those great questions and also sharing your reflections on what is ahead for all of us. Forum is with you. Caroline Smith and Susie Britton produced today's segment. They are with you, too. Thanks for listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.